Welcome to the 66th A.W. Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts. In this six-part lecture series, entitled The Forest, America in the 1830s, art historian Alexander Nemiroff explores the Hudson River School painters and their contemporaries, focusing on what their art did and did not show of the teeming world around them. The forest serves as a metaphor for the unruly and wooded realms of lived experience to which art can only gesture. The lectures present a fundamentally new account of Thomas Cole, John Quidor, James Fenimore Cooper, and other artists and writers of that time. In this first lecture, entitled Herodotus Among the Trees, originally delivered at the National Gallery of Art on March 26, 2017, Professor Nemiroff considers the questions, how does life get into art? What were the definitions of life and of art in the United States in the 1830s? How might life and art have met and diverged there and then? For example, in two landscape paintings by Thomas Cole. These lectures, starting with the one today, are really about the relation of art to life in the 1830s, the relation, but also the splitting apart of those two things. Uh, the relatedness and the splitting apart both having significant consequences for us in the present. Uh, for so I conceive these lectures to be very much about a historical period, but also pertaining to our own lives now. Um, the relatedness, the coming together where you feel language, whether written, spoken, or painted, or you know, otherwise conjured, has this magical matching with the world it seemingly only represents, but actually seems to be one and the same with it. The splitting apart happening very much in the 1830s where um, language becomes uh, a stuff of mere eloquence, of mere um, ornament, and on a cruder level becomes something that you just kind of throw at the world and hope that something sticks and um, it has its kind of crude communicative effectiveness but otherwise has no glory of actually making contact with the world. If you order a pizza and the pizza man comes, language has performed its work effectively, but has there been anything other than an arbitrary relation between words and event that I, I doubt. So how do trees and the forest in the 1830s come to do with this? Well, in a way, the fate and existence of trees has nothing to do with the language story I've just described, but in another sense, it has everything to do with it. And why would that be? It would have to do with um, the, the increasing instrumentalization of the forest in the 1830s, uh, the way that it is, wood is being um, used for the increasing American population. There's a growth of some 26 million people between 1810 and 1860s. 1860, it is the wooden age, as it's been called. Uh, wood is the use for, is used for fuel, et cetera. And you have, therefore, a sense of, you know, clearing out the forests the development of axes of special kinds, et cetera, et cetera. As the forest is instrumentalized, so is language. Uh, and so um, the ornateness 
or so, so language becomes a kind of specific um, utilitarian form. That's one, one idea I'm interested in tracking. It's almost as though with the eradication systematically of trees, there goes with them some eradication of some mysterious effluvium that they emit invisibly to all of us that has to do with connectedness to the world and the capacity of words or paintings to uh, not only be a bridge between us and the world, but to be one and the same as the world. So um, the decline of forests has to do with the decline of eloquence, the loss of language, so I'll be pursuing here. Uh, and this all naturally matters a great deal to me as it concerns history and the practice of history because a historian, contrary to uh, what is sometimes said, is also a writer and is also charged with making words that magically connect to the things he or she would represent. So let me get into this by um, talking about some of the ways that trees and, li and, 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 and forests are about the life we seek in our words and in our relation to the world. Um, and I can do so first by talking about, I'll just call it the life of the tree, and I'll use this image on the screen as a good example of some of the things that might go under that category. It's a tree, an oak tree, not t a photograph I took not far from my home in Palo Alto uh, in the hills above Stanford. And, you know, one thing that this tree, it could be any tree, I suppose, or any photograph of a tree, but that speaks, that one way that it speaks to the life of a tree has to do with um, the infiniteness of a tree. I think, uh, you know, if you were to count all the different um, apertures made by the interlacings of the branches and the leaves, you would probably despair and lose count. There's an infiniteness to a tree as well, coupled with a, a beautiful stability. This is something Agnes Martin, for example, understood very well when she called one of her first grid pictures the tree. Um, the organic totality of a tree, uh, the way you can't sort of separate it into parts and decide that one part, no matter how great or small, the trunk, an individual leaf, the roots, etc., cetera, is, um, is separable from all of the rest of it. This is something that, say, the poet W.B. Yeats in his great poem among school children talking about the chestnut tree uh, described as an image of organic totality. Uh, all those words organic, organization as aesthetic words coming into the American vocabulary in 1829 with the first American edition of Coleridge's works that um, with Coleridge having invented those words like organization and organic. How about the presence of the tree, the immediacy of the tree, which probably all in our waking or dreaming lives we've once upon a time felt, that is where you encounter this thing that is vertical like you, that is mirroring you in a way and seems to be granted a kind of uh, living presence by virtue of your relation to it. This is something the painter Paul Clay talked about when he spoke of uh, feeling that the trees were looking back at him. And Maurice Merleau-Ponty, in his essay, I and Mind, I believe it is, spoke about this being not just a sign of some kind of crude anthropomorphism, but rather the sense that we phenomenologically 
impart our bodies to the tree, which in turn gives us a sense of our own embodiment before it. There's a kind of physical, immediate presence, a kind of now with a capital N that's implied every time we encounter a tree. It is a moment on earth. Uh, and then last not, but not least, there's a sense of the otherness, the strange otherness of a tree. And you know, this is something Nathaniel Hawthorne talked about in 1850 when he described in his notebooks about how it's, if you really want to see a tree, really, go uh, bring a newspaper or a book or something and sit down across from um, you know, the, the verge of a wood and then just pretend like you're doing something else and then look up suddenly and the trees will not have quite had a chance to arrange themselves into their, um, you know, their kind of placid uh, dictionary definition of I am a tree and instead will be there, the, be there in the otherness of their glory or the glory of their otherness. The otherness of trees, I think of what's called deep ecology or radical ecology. Some of you may know the suit um, in 1970 where Disney wanted to develop a part of the Sierra Nevada for a, a resort called Mineral King. And uh, the Sierra Club filed a suit to block that but the Sierra Club was ruled against because the Sierra Club, so the court said, had no interest in that place. It didn't have a physical interest in that particular area. Whereupon something like Deep Ecology was born, a University of Southern California law professor um, wrote an article published in 1972 in a law journal there that said, you know, it, the title of it was Do Trees Have Standing? And it meant, and it meant simply like, do trees have legal rights? And this kind of goes back to, Luke Ferry talks about this in his book called Deep Ecology, back to say 16th century France where you know, the boll weevils would devastate a crop and uh, charges would be brought against them, uh, that they be excommunicated uh, and they would be appointed defense and the defense would argue, often argue like at, at great length over weeks and months of testimony that they the boll weevils are God's creatures too. They're just doing what they do, etc. So deep ecology, as discussed in 1972, had to do then with the granting of legal standing to things that are so other than us, giving them uh, an interest. And actually, in that case, as I recall, um, four judges voted against the idea, two abstained, but three voted for the idea that the trees do have legal rights. So the otherness of trees, and just when I made this picture, you know, I some, somehow can't help being Wordsworthian sometimes, but I, I knew the light was flat, I wanted to go make a picture, the light was right, and uh, you know, there was this furtive sense about what I was doing. I had to park in a space where I had no permit, and I, there was, you know, it was this kind of, somehow this illicit journey, like only I could conceive of photographing a tree as an illicit journey, but I did. <laughs> and uh, I felt somehow vaguely like I was trespassing through the whole thing, but what I noticed was, uh, as I came up to the tree, there was a jogger who was um, on the ground, and there were people around the jogger, 
and there was a siren in the distance, and it looked like someone who had been dehydrated. And I, that added to my kind of discombobulation as I made my picture and then went on my way. But I, it occurred to me several days later that there was this obscure relation between the jogger and the tree, almost as though the jogger, you know, um, prostrate was the tree in some way. And I took it as, again, in this Wordsworthian sense of um, there are worlds I don't understand. And part of life is to allow what is other than you to be, get inside you and transform who you are um, without ever losing its kind of sacred, strange, disturbing, beautiful otherness. So that's the life of the tree. If we think about the 1830s, I wanna talk now about something, the liveliness of the tree, which is a slightly different category, which I can chart through an evolution of three pictures, having to do with, you know, basically what Ruskin would call the pathetic fallacy, like investing uh, things like trees with human attributes. So in the Gothic period, this is a painting at the University of Vermont from circa 1800. You know, that, that period, um, you know, a high romantic period, an artist like this one, an anonymous painter, uh, is, you know, spares no effort in portraying the um, basically, you know, human or godlike power of the tree cracked, split by lightning, we're to presume, and overturning this carriage here. Uh, with its long finger-like hands. If we move up closer to our period and think about American art, looking at Thomas Cole's painting called Lake with Dead Trees made in the Catskills in 1825 when Cole was just a young man, a painting now at the uh, Allen Memorial Art Museum in Oberlin College, you know, this indicates that Cole is himself, as a part of his romantic, romantic wonderment before nature, completely at home in the idea of anthropomorphic trees. These dead trees around the verge of the lake with their reflections, you know, not only have this kind of writhing, uh, animate, or ghostly quality, but they literally evoke some of the feelings Cole wrote about, such as 10 years later on that same lake when he said, the dead trees on the margin added by their silvery tints to the harmony of color, and their images in the water, which had a gentle undulation, appeared like immense glittering serpents playing in the deep. And not to be outdone, Nathaniel Hawthorne separately, but at that same time, if you read his notebooks, he is, you know, not surprisingly much given to investing the natural world trees, for example, with qualities of uh, uncanny life. The shore was covered with tall trees. This is in Maine, where he is, among which I particularly remarked a stately pine, wholly devoid of bark, rising white in aged and majestic ruin, thrusting out its barkless arms. It must have stood there in death many years, its own ghost. So from Hawthorne and Cole, you might just take away most broadly the idea that in the 1830s there is this kind of magical or enchanted quality to uh, the forest and hence to language in some way and on the part of certain practitioners, painted or written language. If we start to move 
Past our chosen decade, though, something happens where I think the enchantment, if it doesn't become eradicated, at least begins to take a more sensible, common sense, uh, and staid form. And this is a painting by Asher Durand, which you can see at Smithsonian American Art Museum here in town, from, a, from about 1850, called Woodland Glen. So Durand was a kind of disciple of Cole, uh, he took a trip with Cole in 1837 to the Adirondacks. The tree was Durand's metaphor par excellence. There was seemingly no tree he, he couldn't become absorbed by. However, Durand's mode was to distance himself from Cole's uh, more um, kind of superstitious anthropomorphism. And these trees, for example, uh, might have a kind of lush, living presence on, in, in Duran's way of portraying them, but they don't quake and swivel and turn and threaten us or welcome us in any of the ways, any of the evident ways that was true for Cole and Hawthorne. And you might take Durand here, fairly or unfairly, as marking a fateful turn away from this enchanted language towards something that is, I think this might be the right word here, sober, proper, uh, decently revelatory, as though revelation should be kind of given the right chapel or bower to unfold itself in. But um, something so I feel, despite my love for these paintings, is lost accordingly. So the liveliness of wood, the life of wood, it would imply seemingly that what's called the wooden age, you know, that is the transformation of trees like this into products would be then, by definition, uh, a loss of enchantment, but that's not so, not how I'm conceiving of the relation of wood to life. So if we consider, say, the beautiful plates in, in Francois Michaud's North American Silva, his, He's basically the Audubon of trees. Uh, Michaud's volumes, which I know from an 1819 edition. Um, the different plates can give us a sense of what I'll call that a wooden world then, where wood really made the world go around. So for example, white oak uh, in one of the plates from North American Silva. The bridge between Boston and Cambridge, 3,000 feet long, was built in this time with uh, white oak uh, supports. The wheels that went over the, that very bridge, and many a bridge in America were made of white oak, it being a favorite of wheelwrights. You know, we're talking about the daily round of America as a, wooden, a wood-invested living realm. The live oak, uh, much more durable than white oak and used for, uh, for shipbuilding though it's only one of many woods used in that capacity. The sugar maple, um, obviously used for syrup, also a kind of beer, also excellent fuel if cut in season. Much sugar maple transported, for example, in our period from Maine to Boston. And you know, part of my imagination of this topic is that that boat 
laden with maple going from Maine to Boston is as alive as anything and as requiring of a comparably enchanted or living language as the remotest tree in the remotest forest. Daily life, you know, how did language lose the art of daily life? The sassafras uh, with its medicinal properties but also good for um, bedsteads. It was said to be um, impervious to insects, um, so good for that. Wild cherry, furniture makers, then as now making beautiful objects out of that wood. Ironwood, uh, named because of its incredibly dense, like alabaster wood, um, used actually as the very sturdy um, um, kind of um, supports or uh, conveying devices to take its fallen brethren, that is other trees in the forest, from one point to another. Uh, also used for household items like brooms and um, things like that. So, you know, the, the person sweeping their kitchen in the 1830s in Philadelphia, that's as electric to me as, again, some tree in the middle of a forest. I don't choose between the two. Um, white ash, uh, elastic, very used for oars, used for all kinds of farm implements, um, you know, the, the handles of scythes, for example. Black willow, which is one of three willows in this picture. This is black willow here. There's a bitter de decoction used um, from its roots that was um, helpful in reducing fevers, so it was said. Uh, white elm, which the bark of which could be stripped fairly easily most seasons of the year and could be soaked in water and kind of pounded into a suppleness and used to uh, as the support for chairs, the bottom for chairs. So, you know, many an, Amer an American bottom sat on a white elm uh, chair. And, um, you know, who says that scatology to the stars is not the historian's province? I don't say that, because uh, it is. Um, white pine, which is kind of the rock star of the American forest in terms of its Utility, used most famously for masts, used also favored for ship's figureheads by carvers, very soft, didn't hold a nail very well, uh, so it had some problems, but its softness and workability was much prized, used for bridges, for example, the bridge across the Schuylkill in Philadelphia, another bridge across the Delaware at Trenton. Uh, hemlock spruce, used for dyeing uh, leather, tanning leather, making a beautiful red tint. White cedar, much prized in Philadelphia because of its um, imperviousness, so used for, um, you know, wash basins, for uh, churns, uh, things like that. Red cedar, uh, the sidewalks and kind of curb, curbs in the streets of Philadelphia are made of red cedar. Um, it also was used in naval architecture on the upper parts of a ship to kind of lighten the load because the, the live oak, which is the really good sturdy wood, was just so heavy that you, could, you would lighten it with red cedar. Also used in the southern states, red cedar for coffins. So 
from kind of sperm to worm, life and death. It's a wooden world, a daily round. Then, which brings me to black walnut, which is used a lot for the decks of ships. Uh, I think one of its prized qualities was that it was impervious to sea worms, to different kinds of infestation. And to just to give you a sense of the livingness of these things, even after they've been chopped down and planed and refined, you know, I thought of this passage from Edgar Allan Poe's very kind of permanently weird uh, story called The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, which is kind of a horror story, nautical story, and almost like Edgar Rice Burroughs' science fiction before the fact. Uh, Arthur Gordon Pym goes down to the south, to the South Pole, and they encounter, he and his shipmates on board the ship Jane encounter a tribe of um, natives led by a chief named Tuwit, and listen, uh, to what is described here when the natives board the ship Jane. They believed the Jane to be a living creature and seemed to be afraid of hurting it with the points of their spears, carefully turning them up. Our crew were much amused with the conduct of Tuwit, who is the chief in one instance. The cook was splitting some wood near the galley and by accident struck his ax into the deck, making a gash of considerable depth. The chief immediately ran up and pushing the cook on one side rather roughly commenced a half whine, half howl, strongly indicative of sympathy in what he considered the sufferings of the schooner, patting and smoothing the gash with his hand and washing it from a bucket of seawater which stood by. So in one sense that is the superstition of the natives, but in another sense Poe being Poe is able to kind of portray something that I think could have been felt more often then, which is a sense of the livingness of wood products that, you know, the tree is still in the furniture. So this must be the villain then of our story. And this is an ax from the Adirondack Museum in Blue Mountain Lake, um, New York. Uh, and it's, it's a good specimen of the kind of ax that was in play in the mid-19th century, or by the early 19th century in America, uh, and which has given rise to many legendary stories, probably some of them truthful, about how the American woods demanded a better axe. And some of you may know the creation of um, the, the, the sort of preeminent axe factory in the world for many years was the Collins Axe Factory in Collinsville, Connecticut not far from Hartford, and that was founded in 1826, right in our period, right when it became, of course, um, the very going thing, the progressive thing to um, raise as much forest as you could, but you needed a better axe, one that would, had a better distribution of weight than the European axes coming over, over um, that would be lighter, um, you know, that would um, be able not only to split but cleave the wood simultaneously, so there's a kind of convex quality to these axes, not exactly visible, too visible here. Um, one of the first things I did when I, or found when I was researching this subject was looking in New Haven and a visit of Andrew Jackson to that city was that he was touring an axe factory then and there, which you know, this is like 1832, which I thought was very interesting. Um, 
you know, as if to survey the state of the art. What the Samuel and David Collins of the Collins factory um, really innovated in true Yankee fashion, along with this inventor entrepreneur named Elisha K. Root who worked for them was basically a system of mass producing axes. They started artisanally in the 1820s, but soon through Elisha K. Root's uh, innovations, they were able to have a mass production of axes, Collinsville axes and also machetes and other fearsome looking things which you can see arrayed in the museum in Collinsville to this day, uh, remain the going thing well into the 20th century. So axes are part of the life world of that time, yes, but there's no mistaking too that they are a blunt utilitarian instrument designed to wreak havoc on, let's call it anything that is not instrumentalized, that is not, um, that has a, as a claim of being just for being ineffably apart from the world of crude means and ends. So three quotes uh, from that decade. So Tocqueville is in Michigan and he's writing, now he's surveying a trip to, he made to, to Michigan. He wanted, along with his friend um, Gustave de Beaumont, to uh, just see some wild woods. And they had the weirdest conversations with Americans about this. An American thinks nothing of hacking his way through a nearly impenetrable forest, crossing a swift river, braving a pestilential swamp, or sleeping in the damp forest if there is a chance of making a dollar. That is the whole point of the exercise. But to do such things out of curiosity confuses him utterly. Since he lives in the wilderness, moreover, the only thing he prizes is the work of man. He is quite happy to send you off to see a highway, a bridge, or a fine village. But the urge to gaze upon huge trees and commune in solitude with nature utterly surpasses his understanding. This quote from the strange novelist and polymath Robert Montgomery Byrd, who will be the subject of my sixth and last lecture from his very bloodthirsty novel of frontier warfare called Nick of the Woods from 1837, where a group of um, of the uh, characters set upon or come upon a kind of ghostly remains of a cabin uh, whose occupants had been murdered by Indians. This is out in Kentucky. They found themselves on a kind of clearing, and this is at night, which had once been a cultivated field of several acres in extent. Throughout the whole of this space, the trunks of the old forest trees, dimly seen in the light of a clouded sky, were yet standing, but entirely leafless and dead and presenting such an aspect of desolation as is painful to the mind, even when sunshine and the flourishing maize, the corn at their roots, invest them with a milder and more cheerful character. Such prospects are common enough in all new American clearings where the husbandman is content to deprive the trees of life by girdling and then leave them to the assaults of the elements in the natural course of decay. And this is true that the easiest way to create a farm would be to girdle the trees, that is cut a, a strip of bark off of, um, a, a circumference of bark off of the tree and then let them slowly wither and die because that way you could plant things like corn right beneath the trees while they were dying. You didn't have to, in other words, um, cut them down and um, you know, deal with the stumps, if you even could deal with the stumps any time in the next few years. 
Um, so what Bird describes is a very common phenomenon, a simple way of putting paid to trees. And notice there's a kind of counterpoint between Bird's own uh, you know, would-be eloquence and then the crudity of the process, the, the um, clearing processes he describes. And then my third quote from the 1830s from a young man in that decade out in Illinois, that is Abraham Lincoln, who at the end of his Lyceum address in 1838 in Springfield is likening the revolutionary fathers who were then uh, all dying off um, he says, Lincoln, they were a forest of giant oaks, but the all-resistless hurricane has swept over them and left only here and there a lonely trunk, despoiled of its verdure, shorn of its foliage, unshading and unshaded to murmur in a few gentle breezes and to combat with its mutilated limbs a few more ruder storms than to sink and be no more. So there's this sense of um, generational loss, but also linguistic loss. It's, it's ironic in a way because of Lincoln being such a great master of language himself, such a great orator, but I always think that the, you know, the homespun um, story of Lincoln as the famous wielder of the axe, the, the rail splitter, etc., is maybe less accurate than his deep affinity for trees, and I always think, um, you know, Lincoln's eloquence is arboreal. So um, the axe is the bad guy, right? But the axe also has another quality, which is, um, I don't know, there's something about this directness that I spoke of in kind of lyrical terms at the start of this lecture, which, can be which is violent also and can be, forceful in somehow, I don't know if it's a poetic way, but some way that forces us to confront the world as it is. And I think, therefore, of one other story from the 1830s as it relates to axes, and this concerns the rebellion of Nat Turner in Southampton, Virginia, in August of 1831. And on the right is um, the confessions of Nat Turner as told to Thomas Gray, um, the booklet, the pamphlet uh, that William Styron used as the basis for his acclaimed 1967 novel, The Confessions of Nat Turner. And you know what Nat Turner confesses to, though he himself did almost none of the killing, is the use of the axe in committing the murders. So uh, he's telling Gray that the family discovered us and shut the door. This is as the slaves are in their insurrection. Vain hope, Will, who is um, one of the slaves, with one stroke of his axe opened it and we entered and found Mrs. Turner and Mrs. Newsom in the middle of a room, almost frightened to death. Will immediately killed Mrs. Turner with one blow of his ax, uh, subsequently killed Ms. Mrs. Newsom. Um, as we approached another house, we discovered Mr. Richard Whitehead standing in the cotton patch near the lane fence. He doesn't know anything's going on, especially we called him over into the lane and Will, the executioner, was near at hand with his fatal ax to send him to an untimely grave. Uh, all the family, that is the Whitehead family, were already murdered, but Mrs. Whitehead and her daughter, Margaret. As I came round to the door, I saw Will pulling Mrs. Whitehead out of the house, and at the step, he nearly severed her head from her body with his broad ax. So, 1831, 
So Acts is uh, a complicated thing and is connected somehow with Nat Turner's own eloquence and his own uh, enchantment, self-described, his own dealing in signs and omens and premonitions. Um, you know, there's a way that the axe or the axe helve, as Robert Frost would make it in 1917, become themselves incredibly um, infinite objects. So what about art in all of this? I said at the start that I was dealing with life and art and the coming together, but also the splitting apart. Well, I wanna talk about this splitting apart a little bit now. And of course, this is going to be a matter of opinion, but I do feel as we look at this painting from 1844 by, again, Asher Durand called the Solitary Oak, sometimes called the Old Oak, three by four foot large painting done in the manner of Albert Kuyp and 17th century Dutch paint, landscape painters, um, that we're in the presence of art splitting away from life here. And, you know, I say this partly because it's a historical phenomenon. We think of modernism as the time, you know, as, as the mode in which um, the autonomy of art is most prized and self-consciously activated. Uh, its separateness from life. But I think even in as homely and as unlikely a place as the 1830s in America, 1840s, there's a sense on the part of those who would gain a respite from the rest of the world, you know, of art providing just that, that it's going to be prized precisely to the degree that it is sacrosanct, set off from uh, the heady directness of uh, either beautiful or blunt or both, of language that purports to make direct contact with the world. Let it be sedative instead. Let it be mild. Let it proffer in gentle truths and indisputable beauties, and it will perform its function, which is a kind of uselessness, uh, though that's a complex uselessness, because uselessness has its uses. Um, <laughs> And our art and art, well, art is, is one of the most powerful places for that combination of terms. But, you know, when I look at this picture, it's hard for me not to think of it as we look at this old oak, implicitly the you know, kind of last survivor, a kind of last of his race. Could think of, um, say, Lincoln's Lyceum speech and think of like this as a revolutionary generation like fading off into the sunset or still providing faithfully shade to these animals and a kind of peaceful canopy to this prosperous, God-given farm. But um, think of it also in terms of the sentiment or sentimentality of say like the 1837 popular song, Woodsman Spare That Tree, you know, that there's a kind of curious alliance or complicity between beauty and destruction here. Um, that, you know, the landscape out here may not literally have been clear cut, but its emptiness or openness invites us to think of the forests being denuded. And it makes me think a little bit that art, to the extent that it's connected with the beautiful solitude of this one tree is kind of connected with like, um, you know, a kind of um, Pyrrhic leftover, like uh, art is what you do and what you make and what you look at when uh, 
when the destruction has happened, when life has happened, art becomes the solace, the separation, the quietude, all these terms which once upon a time had their life and their power but are being shunted off into a kind of pasture, a kind of retirement. And you know, from among the many quotations I might choose to try to explore that idea further, I think of Margaret Fuller, the great transcendentalist writer, editor, editor of Emerson's journal, The Dial, as of 1840, Margaret Fuller, in whose ears when her ship broke up at Fire Island in 1850, one could hear the splintering and cracking of the wood as she drowned. Probably the last thing she heard was, in a way, the life of the American forest still living as her ship sank. Margaret Fuller, who in 1839 is writing to a friend, Elizabeth Hoare, says, since you went away, I have thought of many things I might have told you, but I could not bear to be eloquent. Like, so Durand, I think, he can bear to be eloquent. That's his thing. I could not bear to be eloquent and poetical. It seems a mockery, thus to play the artist with life. Notice the separation of art and life. And dip the brush in one's own heart's blood. One would fain no more be an artist or a philosopher or a lover or a critic, but a soul ever rushing forth in tides of genial life, or retiring evermore into precious crystals too pure to be lonely. You know, missing that connection, wanting for words and world to actually be one and the same. Um, Emerson said, you know, about our use of language that it's as though we use the cinders of the volcano to roast our eggs. You know, we all have this power, like this basically um, incredibly earthy, volatile power, and we, you know, use it to roast our eggs, order the pizza, etc. This picture, as we think about art and life and their separation, but also their kind of crossing, their uneasy negotiation between, between, uh, uh, within, or within, or across one another's realms is more complicated, I think, for me than Duran's picture we looked at a moment ago. It's a very small painting at the Yale Art Gallery by the great Long Island painter, and I think in some ways really great painter, generally William Sidney Mount, called After Dinner from 1834. And you will immediately see that uh, this is a picture about art because it shows the violinist in his kind of Chopin-like um, romantic beauty, um, but he's not isolated, he's not like Duran's Oak. He's instead in the company of two recognizable types, a merchant, I would say, here, and a working man here. He turns away, the artist turns away from both of them to make his music, which I think is a right and proper indication that one must sequester oneself or turn away to be, as an athlete would say, in the zone of one's performance, one's very life as, as an artist. But that turning away is connected to a, a powerful and even poignant relatedness here. And you could read this relatedness in different ways, but I would say relation of artist to merchant is somewhat the relation between artist and patron. And it is a kind of symbiotic one in which, say, the patron's knee or his leg is crossed over with the artists in which there are various other kind of affini visual affinities between them, this crooked arm, crooked elbow, and the violin, for example, and in which the merchant, I don't know how to describe that look, but he 
begrudgingly listens, he does not turn away. And though the same gesture could be read as boredom and also even as, you know, um, stopping up his ear, uh, which, you know, does, does remind me of this relation between art and um, commerce, that nonetheless it is a kind of uneasy but begrudging alliance here between these uh, two figures, which does speak very much to Mount's own connections to, um, you know, he's selling his pictures as he should. The relation to the working man is, uh, is also complicated. I would say, you know, the artist kind of emerges out of the working man a little bit, or at least their bodily postures are in some kind of relation, not a Siamese twin relation, but nonetheless, some kind of connection. The cock of their heads is slightly different. The jaunt, like what are you looking at? Uh, stare of the working man is different from the cocked head of the artist, but you feel there's a connection and who knows what that connection speaks of, but it's something to do with perhaps, um, you know, that this music, this art has not lost touch with life. Mount a Democrat, a Jacksonian, is thinking very much not in terms of a separation of art from life, but in terms of, I would almost say, like they're, the way they flow through one another, the life informing the art, which informs the life, et cetera, et cetera. It's a really kind of beautiful picture about art's separation from, but also on a deeper level, connection to uh, daily life. But here is my big villain of, of the piece, um, because this is a painting that I really don't like, and, I, and it comes from exactly the time period we're talking about, and it speaks more than anything else to the separation of art from life as a developing political economic phenomenon of those years. It's Samuel F.B. Morse's uh, large painting, The Gallery of the Louvre. I believe it's six by nine feet. Uh, so Morse was in Italy and then in Paris, and from 1831 to 33, risking um, a cholera epidemic there, he uh, dutifully went about making this picture which would show many of the paintings, the masterworks in the Salon Carré uh, there, and you can recognize some Leonardo's Mona Lisa, Titian's Francis I, for example, uh, Claude pictures here, it's a Guido Reni painting there of the uh, death of Hercules, I believe. Um, that's Rubens's um, Isabella Fourmont. So this is Veronese's marriage at Cana and on and on. Why, why do I not like this picture and why, what does it have to do with the phenomenon I've been tracing? Well, it is precisely the turn of art into the stuff of politeness, erudition, uh, society, uh, refinement. This might be Morse himself instructing uh, this art student here on the making of a picture, making of a copy. This is Morse's friend, James Fenimore Cooper, with his wife uh, looking over the shoulders of their daughter, who is also making a copy here. Uh, it's like, when I think of this painting, I think of all, you know, all the old masters being reduced essentially to, I always think of them as playing cards in this picture. Uh, one of the things that 
Morse did when he made this painting, or as a prelude to it, was make very small studies of some of the individual pictures. This one, for example, not to scale here, but it's even smaller, of course, but it's of, it's Morse's painting of Titian's painting of Francis I. And, you know, it's kind of like um, a king in the deck of cards, and maybe that's why I think of it that way. But it's the reducing, the reduction of art, whatever Morse's intentions were, to play, play things, to uh, chits or counters, and in the name of what game? I would say in the name of cultural privilege and the the uh, furthering of social inequality in America. People talk about this painting having failed miserably on its economic tour through cities like New York and New Haven in the early 1830s, and it's true, it did fail. And you know, one understanding of that failure is that, you know, is that people weren't ready to be educated or improved, as it were, by Morse, but I always think of the failure in slightly more Whitmanian terms, which is like, why not give us something that relates to life? You know, these paintings are coming with this chiaroscuro, thick and hot and boiling from the source, like it's raining down in clouds and drenches of light and shade, and it's so wan here. It's as though Morse, you know, with his notable anti-Catholicism, just couldn't quite get his mind around the, the supple, light and shade of, um, that is an old master's power. It's kind of Rembrandt-like revelatory power. It's ironic then in this picture the way uh, Cooper is shown because Cooper is a guy who actually did use that chiaroscuro much more powerfully than his friend Morse and who really brought the old masters directly to the portrayal of the American forest. Two quotes from Cooper here who's shown as such a mild guy here but I always think of him as really this energetic artist here. This is like Cooper's alter ego, the artist in the act of creation with his legs splayed out to the side in the manner that an artist has when he or she is kind of losing, is not fully aware of where their body is going because they're so absorbed, so in the zone. Cooper knows that he's, he wants big vats and bubbling cauldrons of chiaroscuro to portray his forests, all beneath the fantastic limbs and ragged treetops lay alike in shadowed obscurity. Behind them, the curvature of the banks soon bounded the view by the same dark and wood outline. This is as uh, Natty Bumpo and the daughters of Colonel Monroe and Uncas and Chingachgook uh, seek uh, the, the cave at Glens Falls. Also from the Deerslayer, so rich and fleecy were the outlines of the forest that scarce an opening could be seen, as if vegetation were not Satisfied with a triumph so complete, the trees overhung the lake itself, shooting out toward the light. There were miles along its eastern shore where a boat might have pulled beneath the branches of dark, Rembrandt-looking hemlocks. So, you know, the thickness of light and shade as a living substance inherited from the old masters is something Cooper can deal with, and um, Morse wants to throttle and refine and domesticate in the name of art with a capital A as that which is uh, separate from life and is coming under the realm of adjudication, administration, and um, taste. So what would be a work of art that really actually gets into life and makes us feel life from that time? Well, I nominate this 
very strange picture by Thomas Cole called A Wild Scene from 1831-32, which is four by six feet and is at the Baltimore Museum of Art. It's a painting that Cole painted for his patron, Robert Gilmore, in Baltimore and um, sent to Gilmore in recompense for the $300 that Gilmore had loaned him Cole to go to Florence and um, make a trip there to study. The painting was made in Florence. So a wild scene, Cole describes it as actually like a first go at what would become the savage state in his later course of empire. You know, uh, savage figures as Cole called them, uh, primitive hunters clad in animal skins, one of whom aims an arrow right at this fleeing stag in this massive landscape like so. It's a weird, clunky painting which in some ways I can't separate from how it was discovered in 1958, much time darkened in the house of a woman in Baltimore and was given as probably not a coal at all but just some big murky landscape painting to Baltimore uh, Museum whereupon it, it, was, it came out five years later that it, it was a coal painting. I think of that decrepitude as somehow of a piece with the picture, its ungainliness, but maybe it's that ungainliness or unresolvedness, it's kind of savageness right up into the two pieces of canvas, not visible here, but of which, that are sewn together to make the, the total picture, that I find most kind of movingly lifelike in this picture, and I suppose what I find powerful most about it is this corner here. This is what I keep coming back to again and again, is just the, the, the if you like, the onomatopoeia of the roots and the, um, as well as the anthropomorphism and everything, and the entanglement of all these vines and trees and limbs, and they remind me of Emerson's call in those same years for a natural language, for this absolute, indisputable, really magical connection between words and world, or between paint and world. The corruption of man, uh, Emerson says, is followed by the corruption of language, when simplicity of character and the sovereignty of ideas is broken up by the prevalence of secondary desires, the desire of riches, of pleasure, of power, and of praise, and duplicity and falsehood take place of simplicity and truth. The power over nature is in a degree lost. New imagery ceases to be created, so eloquence and words and nature are all combined for Emerson, and old words are perverted to stand for things which are not. A paper currency is employed when there is no bullion in the vaults. So Emerson is seeing the the, the disappearance of a gold standard of language. In due time, the fraud is manifest and words lose all power to stimulate the understanding or the affections. Hundreds of writers may be found in every long civilized nation who for a short time believe and make others believe that they see and utter truths, who do not of themselves clothe one thought in its natural garment, but who feed unconsciously on the language created by the primary writers of the country those, namely, who hold primarily on nature. But wise men pierce this rotten diction and fasten words again to visible things. 
You know, I, I went to graduate school in the 1980s, which was the, the time above all times when this kind of natural connection was exposed as an ideological fiction. It was the time of deconstruction. It was the time to resist the, the you know, romanticism and enchantedness of Yeats's poem among school children and so on. And I have done my own part in being skeptical over the years, but, and that skepticism, of course, remains a part of me, but I, as I get older, I just keep looking. I mean, what's wrong with that? I mean, I, I can't, you know, it's like any one of us knows when someone out of the great stream of words says something that is absolutely to the point, you know, blunt or so beautiful that it's, you just, you don't say anything. You know, so I've, I don't see that that has been countermanded. It's just kind of, like the metro trains here, it kind of goes underground at times. And I think this might be a moment when it's coming back up. Natural eloquence, you know, um, life and art. What is this on the right and how does that relate to it? It is a stain, a hemlock stain, one of the hemlock boards in the Catskill Lyceum where Thomas Cole was eloquent, where he gave his lecture on American scenery in 1841, decrying the clear cutting of the forests. Cole's words on that day came forth, you know, they were artistic, they were poetical, they were flowery. There's something, I think, m more eloquent about this stain, which was there then and is now still there and which has to do with the ever wetness of these hemlock trees that even having been converted into boards still are weeping or staining or otherwise leaving a mark, the sap in them somehow never having refused quite to evaporate. So says my friend John Phillips, who with his wife, the painter Jenny Gardner, lives in that same place now. You know, life is eloquent in this way, in an Emersonian way, in a Whitmanian way. It kind of beggars the eloquence of the orator. Words, to have their connectedness to life, must aspire to the power and pregnancy of the stain. Something like this, I think, does do that. Um, so I feel, you know, if you imagine the materials Cole used, the, the different fragrance of, say, linen, his, his support, or of uh, the rabbit glue that would be a binder, or most, most like overpowering, like punch in the nose, the turpentine, which is basically like cracked right out of the pine tree, you know, in which, so John Phillips says, would like, you know, makes like, uh, like a gallon of old knob seem pretty mild and like beautifully bokeh-y in comparison. Like 19th century turpentine was strong stuff. It's, it's the, the life of trees is somehow in these things. Eloquence, you take it where you can get it and it doesn't mean it needs to be worked up into a painting or into an oratory to be found. It can exist in the world as found.
But it starts to disappear as this kind of domestication of nature uh, continues to unfold. And it's a domestication and a destruction, not only of trees, but of the meaningfulness of words that of course we experience in plenitude to this day. But it's tricky, it's complicated, this process. So on the screen is a painting from the 1850s, a kind of high time when, I mean, the amount of um, clear cutting between 1850 and 59 is probably equal to all that took place in the previous decades of the 19th century. In other words, the period with the, the axes and the Collins factory I've been describing is just the prelude for this really, um, you know, wholesale um, destruction and correspondingly this instrumentalization of language in, and of painting in the 1850s in America, but it's tricky. So this painting is not by Cole, it's by a painter named Jerome Thompson and it's called Recreation and it's from 1857. And I find it chilling, this painting, in one way because here is our artist again, an artist figure, that is this man playing this pipe. The artist, as one finds in paintings uh, from this moment of the middle class acceptance of art and seeking after it, it the artist is a kind of entertainer, a muzak uh, performer to this grateful audience clustered around him. These two women sipping their coffee, there's the pot there, look on with interest, perhaps even amorous interest, this trysting couple here um, are kind of lost in their own flirtation, but presumably enjoy from the other side of the tree the musical notes that accompany their burgeoning love. Interesting couple here. She is turning away from the musician and is in some kind of relation to him, but she's looking seemingly out onto the lake he, meanwhile, it's almost the ideal audience member, mirroring this figure, seems not interested in her, but connecting to, his, uh, to the musician here, like, like a real enraptured spectator for art. If this is the audience for art then, though, it still seems like a pretty poor reward, like you are a minstrel. Uh, you're part of the culture, you've been brought into the culture, your wayward pilgrim's progress has been incorporated now into the circle of the picnic. Except for one thing, which is this tree that rises up kind of dead and alive from, from the musician. Because when I think of this, I think of this being the visual form of his notes, which if so, takes the form then of something that is much greater than this worldly gathering around them that rises up and even has a kind of disturbing um, pan-like quality. I'm, I, I look carefully in the actual painting at the de Young in San Francisco and the, the guy doesn't have pointed ears but he is hirsute and he is if anything like Pan who's gone to the barber, he, he is still in touch with a kind of wilder phenomenon, which you could gloss as just another version of an anodyne romanticism, you know, uh, the, the artistic equivalent of the scenic overlook at the highway, but I mean it in the more uh, destructive 
kind of powerful, overpowering or overtowering quality of art that looms up and that bespeaks some weird and finally disturbing kinship between the artist and the natural world and also between art, the making of art, and the natural world, as though it is an emanation, not of the drawing room and not of the parlor, but of life. You know, it's part of my perennial disappointment that um, even those who love art can sometimes, it seems, not wish for that connection to be the thing that is most deserving of their praise. So the artist in his connection or her connection to nature survives kind of masquerading as an entertainer or not masquerading but really bringing it full on. And I think if I were going to dedicate this series of lectures to any one person, it would probably be Francis Parkman who really was as the great historian of the French and Indian Wars, Francis Parkman who lived from 1823 to 93 the poet of the forest, and in his commencement address at Harvard in 1844, he really brought it on full, describing the destruction of eloquence and the destruction of the forest, neither one of which he was going to let stand in the many, many, many volumes he wrote. Art has not been idle here for the last two centuries, but she has done her best to ruin, not to adorn, the face of nature. She has torn down the forests and blasted the mountains into fragments. The stern and solemn poetry that breathed from her endless wilderness is gone, and the dullest, plainest prose has fixed its home in America. So Parkman will then counteract that. And I suppose he's one model of history for me, but I wanted to close this lecture on two other models of what it is I would hope to do, probably fail to do, but would love to do. Um, one has to do with the historian who is in my title, Herodotus Among the Trees. So the fifth century BC Greek historian Herodotus, and I'll just make Cole's um, savage hunter be my accompaniment here to what I'm about to say. Um, in praising Herodotus, I'm not praising someone who is, you know, closer to a primeval state. I'm not doing some kind of mythic uh, riff on language where once upon a time people had the access to the very roots of words so that if you cut their words they bled, uh, whereas we moderns are denatured and pale and suffer in our very genteelness or our coarseness or both. Um, I think actually the cutting the words to make them bleed is again as alive as it ever was, but it's, it's, it's profoundly submerged and has been in this country since at least the time I've been talking about. No, I, I praise Herodotus um, because he's an irresponsible historian. You know, he's the one who's willing to take things, you know, he's very kind of guileless or willing to take things on faith. The Egyptians told me, um, you know, the Greeks told me, the Spartans said, and then he puts in the stories. You know, I, I did a piece on the photographer Danny Lyon not too long ago. Danny Lyon studied Greek history at the University of Chicago in the early 1960s before he went on to his great career still ongoing as a photographer of largely of 
questions of American loneliness and social injustice. And I was somewhat disappointed to learn that from Danny Lyon that Thucydides was his great hero as a historian when he studied uh, Greek literature at the University of Chicago. Uh, disappointed because I guess I think I praise Herodotus for his, his legendariness and his, willing to, his willingness to deal in legends and stories as opposed to straight facts. And that distinction, legend versus fact, is interesting as it relates to being a historian. Um, I myself have been known to recoil from the word legend. Um, you know, a long time ago I helped do a show here in Washington called The West as America, and it was very much about creating, leg turning legend into fact. And I was disappointed some years later to see a book come out about Western photography called Print the Legend, which refers to a line from the John Ford Western, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, where at the end of the day, after Ransom Stoddard, played by Jimmy Stewart, has told, has told uh, the whole way it really went down, the man who shot Liberty Valance, it's not the legend, here's the facts. You see the newspaper editor, after writing everything down, tear it up at the end, and Jimmy Stewart's character says, what are you doing? And the editor says, um, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. So there's this book comes out, print the legend. I think like, what, are you kidding me? Print the legend? Um, I thought we had overturned that. But there is something about legendariness, storytelling, fable that I think is closer to truth than we might believe. And another detail of Cole's A Wild Scene maybe allows me to say something else relative to Herodotus about this, which is simply, you know, I think the historian has to believe somehow in what can't be seen, in what is not quite there. The historian looks out as into this vista of Cole's painting with its tiny figures, which we couldn't see in the big picture, this detail here, and says, right there, right where nothing is, that's where something happened, you know. Um, I can't prove it, but it's there. And I know in today's political climate, you know, I can't prove it, I can't verify it has a sinister ring. But let me say this, I think within the halls of academe, um, I think often fiction and falsehood are mixed up with one another wrongly. You know, war and peace. You know, there, it didn't happen like those characters are made up. You know, but. We believe it, you know, fiction, the power of fiction to deliver us into a truth versus falsehood, which is, you know, often is just chicanery or deceit. So why is it that we, and I speak of academics, but of a lot of us, like, is it not the better part of intelligence or wisdom to be beguiled by a story, by a fiction, by a painting, by what is not there? Henry James grew up with a, with a Thomas Cole painting in his very house, not this one, and he, he said he used to beguile away the hours of his boyhood, kind of staring into the distance of this painting. 
um, being beguiled about what is not there, what is not truthfully, visibly, empirically, verifiably there is a form of wisdom I get from Herodotus. And it has to do with dreaming in a way, and I puzzled over which part or which anecdote from the many anecdoted histories of Herodotus to use, but this one kind of mystically came to me as the one I should use. It's from Xerxes' invasion of Greece uh, in Book 7. I, Xerxes is being advised by a counselor um, about his dreams, and it's the perfect story of like, you know, the voice of common sense empiricism versus a more mystic voice. I, who am older than you, the counselor says, by many years, so I know better, will tell you what these visions are that float before our eyes in sleep, because Xerxes has this horrible dream. Uh, Nearly always these drifting phantoms are the shadows of what we have been thinking about during the day. I've often heard that about what I do. It's, uh, come on, I mean, it's just this, or it's just that. It's a kind of wayward stream of the imagination. Nevertheless, and this is why I, I prize the advice of this particular advisor, nevertheless, it is possible that your dream cannot be explained as I have explained it. Perhaps there is indeed something divine in it. Something about, um, you know, something that is mystical, that is not there, that can't be proved, might have a connection to not just the natural world, but to, he says the divine, but I think we could write it as inspiration, like something that you can't explain that comes out of nowhere, that is a feeling, a revelation that is equally your own and that of the world that is apart from you and other than you and that entering into you is a, is, allows you to speak the otherness of the world. That's what a poet is. That's what a painter is. That's why Cole was a great painter because he, he had something of that awareness. He, he was given, invested with that. But here's my last um, meditation on history and what it is to be a historian. Talked about Parkman and Herodotus, but I wanted also to bring this to Washington, D.C. and to, I guess, in a way, my own personal history here. And on the screen is the dust jacket of a book that some of you will remember the show for, Facing History, the Black Image in American Art, which was an exhibition at the Corcoran back in 1990, put on by an art historian named Guy McElroy. You see his name right there. And this is a exhibition, there was an opening attended by some 500 people, including the Reverend Jesse Jackson. It was about uh, exactly what the subtitle says it was about. Um, Guy McElroy um, was the curator, but also I have this memory of Guy McElroy. I never met him. He was a graduate student in Washington then. I was a graduate student in Washington then. I never met him but I have this memory of him at, of all things, a screening of what film? It was of Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, which had just been released that year. And I have this memory, it came back to me, of sitting in the front row of a theater and looking over at this man, this black man to the left of me, 
And I always think of John Singleton Copley's picture here as a kind of portrait of the author of this book. This black man next to me, uh, just a few feet away from me, watching the movie, his face illuminated by the screen. And he was in a wheelchair because Guy McElroy had been involved in an automobile accident three years earlier in 1987. And I remember very particularly his black fingerless gloves. And that was the only time I ever saw Guy McElroy, who died later that year in the late spring at age 44. It's just this memory that comes back to me as I prepare to give these talks. And I've since had it confirmed for me, actually, that there was an event where various personnel at Washington Museums were given free tickets to see Henry V, and that therefore it does make a lot of sense that I saw, for the one and only time in my life, Guy McElroy in the front row of a movie theater watching Henry V with its famous meditation on history. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest of heaven of invention was my favorite line of Shakespeare's growing up. You know, how can we transcend this, this cockpit and make you believe it is the vasty fields of France? How can we help you to see uh, what is not palpably here, but which can nonetheless, we can beguile your vision and make you see something that is not literally present? That illumination cascading down on me and on Guy McElroy right then and there. And this just made me want to take off the dust jacket of this book and just look at the book itself. And I wanted to close by just reading something I wrote about this dust jacket that I think speaks to what it is to be a historian. It's just, you know, a meditation about what I'm seeing or as it were holding in my hands. An abstraction, a hard-edged design, four square, scuffed and stained in the way that in books is a sign of honor, of use. The blank cloth of the cover struck me also as faceless, as lacking the face that the dust jacket displayed, yet not so much lacking in it that it did not also suggest Shroud of Turin-like the after image of the face it denies, as if the dust jacket had seeped into the cloth, as though the stains were the remnants of the missing face, or as though the face had become more powerful for not being there, a meditation on the ongoing life of books and scholars, even when their faces disappear, a meditation, to put it another way, on how when we face history, we are confronted with a blank, a blank that is not merely conventional melancholy, the glamour of the trace, and not just a story of erasure or the way that even the books that would address erasures of the historical record should ultimately revert to the erasures they sought to fill with faces. Erase yet remain these faces somehow as though beloved style, there are some crimes that will always display their telltale marks. But also this blank a sign that history, when we encounter it fully, directly, when, when it lives in us, as I consider my memory of McElroy on that one occasion to do so in me, is itself a concentrated blank or compelling emptiness, 
something we should be cautious about filling too readily with faith. The past, if I reflect on this story, comes to us in kind of intensified moments. The pagination of those moments is dense, compact. The peculiar sensations of those moments, the light on McElroy's face, on his gloves, on the treads of his wheelchair, are mysteries. And probably it is these experiences, these peripheral, sidelong glances, these chance encounters, immediate, ceremonial, glowing in some historical illumination where we see the cryptic past face to face. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.